Section 13 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 14, The New Era, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. John Erickson, Part 3. Regarding Erickson's relation to the successful introduction of the screw propeller, little need be added to what has already been said. Whatever may be urged regarding dates and patents or earlier years in which the screw propeller was used, it is a fact that in 1833-35 it was not recognized as an accepted mode of propulsion. While known as a possibility, it had no standing in the engineering practice of the day. A few years later, it was recognized as an accepted mode of propulsion and had gained a permanent and definite place in the practice of the day, a place which has continued to grow in importance until its earlier rival, the paddle wheel, is almost on the brink of relegation to museums of antiquities, except possibly for rare and special shallow water uses. A careful and dispassionate study of the facts, so far as they can be known at the present time, seems to indicate clearly that of those who were concerned in successfully adapting the screw propeller to the needs of marine propulsion, and in laying the foundation for these changed conditions, especially in the United States, none was so prominent as Ericsson, or so fairly deserving of the chief credit. And with this judgment, the mature thought of the present day seems to agree with little dissent. Turning to a consideration from a similar point of view of Ericsson's services in connection with warship design and construction, note may first be taken of the condition of the art of naval warfare in the years 1840 through 50, or when Ericsson first began his labors in this field. The material used was wood, the means of propulsion, sails, with some thought of steam engines and paddle wheels. The means of offense were cast iron guns, large in number but small in size, the largest being 9 or 11 inches in diameter and throwing a shell of some 75 or 130 pounds weight, while the means of defense consisted solely in the wooden walls, and modern ideas regarding armor had not even appeared above the horizon. Erickson's contributions to the art of naval warfare are embodied in the Princeton, the Monitor and its class, and the Destroyer. In the Princeton, the material used was wood, and in the Monitor and Destroyer, iron, following simply the developments of the age. In the three, the means of propulsion was by screw propeller. In the Princeton, the means of offense were two 12-inch wrought iron guns, as already noted. In the monitor and its type, the means of offense were two 11-inch smoothbore cast-iron guns, followed later by larger guns of 13 and 15 inches of similar type. In the double-turreted monitors, four such guns were of course installed. In the destroyer, the means of offense was a single gun for discharging a torpedo underwater at the bow. On the Princeton, the means of defense consisted still in wooden walls, while in the monitor and its class, the change was profound and complete. The essential idea of the monitor was low freeboard and thus small exposed surface to the ship herself, combined with the mounting of guns in circular revolving turrets, thus giving an all-around fire and on the whole making possible an adequate protection of the exposed parts of the ship and providing for the combination in maximum proportions of armored protection and heavy guns for offense. On the destroyer, the means of defense consisted simply in a light deflecting deck armor forward, the vessel being intended to fight bows on, and depending on her means of offense rather than defense, which were made quite secondary in character. 
The Monitor, however, was Ericsson's great contribution to the art of naval war, and with it his name will always be associated. It broke with the past in every way. It reduced the number of guns from many to few, two or at most four. It reduced the freeboard from the lofty topsides of the old ship of the line to an insignificant two or three feet, and thus made of the target a circular fort and a low-lying strip of armor. It placed the guns in this circular fort and covered it with armor thick enough to ensure safety against any guns then afloat. And thus, as perfectly as the engineering means of the day would permit, ensured the combination of offensive and defensive features in maximum degree. It cleared away at one stroke masts, sails, and all the lofty top hamper which, since time immemorial, had seemed as much an essential feature of the fighting ships as the guns themselves. It transformed the design of the fighting ship from the older ideals expressed in the American frigate Constitution, or the English Victory, to the simplest terms of offense, defense, and steam motive power. It made of the man of war a machine rather than a ship, an engine of destruction to be operated by engineers rather than by officers of the ancient and traditional type. There is small wonder that in all quarters the idea of ships of this type was not received with enthusiasm. The break with the past was too definite and complete. The monitor type represented simply the solution of the problem of naval warfare worked out by a man untrammeled by the traditions of the past and determined only on reducing such a ship to the simplest terms of offense and defense as expressed by the engineering materials and possibilities of the day. Judged from this standpoint, the vessel seems beyond criticism. She filled perfectly the ideal set before himself by her designer, and represents as a complete and harmonious whole what must still be recognized as the most perfect solution of the problem in terms of the possibilities of those days. It is proper here that due reference should be made to the claims in behalf of Mr. Theodore R. Timby, as an inventor of the turret and of the monitor idea as expressed thereby. These claims and the main facts in the case have long been known, and there should certainly be no attempt to take from anyone his due share in the developments which gave to our nation a monitor in her hour of need. It is well known that Mr. Timby, between 1840 and 1850, conceived the idea of a revolving fort of iron mounted with numerous guns and intended to take the place of the masonry or earth structures in common use for such purposes. He seems also to have conceived of a similar structure for use on a ship of low freeboard, and a model showing such a design was constructed. In 1843, he filed a caveat for the invention of the revolving turret. Here the matter apparently rested until 1862, and after the battle between the Monitor and Merrimack, when he took out a patent, which was dated July 8, 1862, covering a revolving tower for defensive and offensive warfare, whether on land or water. Erickson's associates in the business of building monitors for the government acquired these patents of Timby, presumably as shrewd businessmen, in order to quiet any claim on his part, and to have the plan available for land forts should the opportunity arise to push the business in this direction. There is no question but that Erickson was antedated by Timby in the suggestion of a revolving turret, at least in so far as public notice is concerned. Erickson frankly admitted this, and stated that he made no claim to absolute originality in this respect. He further stated what is undoubtedly true, that the main idea in the turret, that of a circular revolving fort, antedates the 19th century as a whole, 
and its origin is lost in the uncertainties of early tradition. It is simply one of those early ideas which naturally must have been known in essence since time immemorial, and as such it was the common property of the engineering practice of the century. It belongs neither to Timby nor to Erickson, and no claims regarding priority in this respect are worthy of serious consideration. The question is not who first conceived the idea of a revolving fort, but who designed and built the monitor as she was, and as she met the Merrimack on the 9th of March, 1862. The answer to the latter is too well known a part of history of the times to admit of question or to call for further notice. Erickson's claim for recognition in this respect rests not on any priority of idea regarding the use of a circular fort, but rather upon the actual monitor as she was built and as she crushed at one blow the sea power of the South, and representing as it did a completely and carefully designed whole, dating back to the earlier dealings with Napoleon III in 1854. This is an age which judges men by what they do, and judged by this standard, Erickson's claims in connection with the monitor type of warship are never likely to be seriously questioned. Taking Erickson's life and work, what portion remains as a permanent acquisition or as a part of the practice of the present age? This is a question which merits at least a moment's notice. We should not make the mistake of thinking that permanency is necessarily a test of merit or that the value of his services to the world should be judged by such parts of his work as are plainly apparent in the practice of the present day. A piece of work must be judged by the circumstances which brought it forth and by the completeness and perfection of its adaptation to the needs and possibilities of its age. We have, then, the steam fire engine, compressed air which he early employed in England and which has become an instrument of enormous importance in connection with the industrial progress of the age, although this is in no especial degree due to his efforts. The surface condenser, distiller, and evaporator are a permanently and absolutely essential part of modern marine practice. The screw propeller has almost sole possession of the field of marine propulsion. Modern marine engines and boilers in naval practice are always placed below the waterline and are protected by deflective deck armor, and frequently by coal as well. The turret has become a permanent and accepted part of the practice of the age, while the monitor type in its essential feature seems to be evanescent. The modern battleship is a vastly more complex structure and represents more complex ideas and combinations than did Ericsson's monitor. It contains a battery of guns of the heaviest type known to naval ordnance. At present, such guns are usually of 12-inch bore and throw a shell of about 800 pounds weight with an initial velocity of nearly 3,000 feet per second. Then there is a supporting battery of guns, 6, 7, or 8 inches in diameter of bore, and finally, a secondary battery of smaller, quick-firing guns throwing shells of from 1 pound to 20 or 30 pounds weight. And added to these, there may be a torpedo outfit as well. The exigencies of fighting ships at sea and in all weathers seems to have pronounced against the monitor type with its low freeboard as unsuitable for use on the open sea. While the enormous advances in modern guns and armor have made a totally different problem of the distribution of means offensive and defensive. Again, the monitor type was never intended for long cruising or indeed for other service than the defense of coasts and harbors. The policy of building a vessel thus adapted only to an inner line of defense and not adapted to an outer line of defense and offense as well has been further called in question, and the judgment of the present day has decided against such policy. It is true that in the so-called New Navy, begun in 1883, 
One monitor, the Monterey, has been built, while four others of older type have been somewhat modernized, and there are three monitors building at the present time. It may be doubted, however, if they will be followed by others, at least so long as the conditions of naval warfare and the spirit of public policy remain as they now are. The monitor type was a perfect solution of the problem of its day, and nobly it answered the calls made on it. The problem has now changed, the conditions affecting its solution have also changed, and it is no discredit to the original type that it now seems to have had its day, and that it must give way to other forms more perfectly expressing the spirit of the present age and the means available for the solution of present-day problems in the art of naval war. In many ways, however, the influence of Ericsson's work still lives in the modern battleship, and while in our modern designs we have gotten far away from the essential features of the monitor type, yet it is not too much to say that the germ of the modern battleship is in many ways found in the monitor, especially as expressed in terms of concentration of heavy gunfire and localized protection of gun positions. And in more ways than may be suspected, the influence of Ericsson and of his work had its part in the developments which have led to the splendid designs of the present day. Returning again to our note of the dependence of the present age on Ericsson, mention may be made of the blower for forcing the combustion in steam boilers as a well-established feature of standard marine practice, and one absolutely essential to the development of the highest attainable speeds, such as are required in warships and especially in those of the torpedo and modern destroyer types. Likewise, the use of the fan for ventilation, as used by him in his early practice, has become a necessity of modern conditions both on naval and passenger ships, for the health and comfort of both passengers and crew. His long series of experiments and his years of labor on air and other forms of caloric engine are only represented by the Ericsson Air Engine now on the market, and having its fair share of service in locations where simplicity of operation and scarcity of water may naturally suggest its use. Of his labors in connection with a solar engine, and with other questions which occupied much of the time of his closing years, we have but little direct result. Others are at work on the idea of the solar engine, and it may be that a practicable solution of the problem will be found. Ericsson's lasting imprint on engineering practice, curious as it may seem, was made in his earlier and middle life rather than in his later years, and we have even more in the way of permanent acquisition from his earlier than from his middle years. This results from the fact that in middle life he was largely engaged on warship designs, admirably adapted to the needs of the time and to the possibilities of the age, but no longer suited to either while in later life he no longer found it necessary to work at problems which would produce a direct financial return, and therefore interested himself in a variety of questions somewhat farther removed from the walks of everyday engineering practice than those with which he was occupied in earlier life. In personality, Erickson possessed the most pronounced and self-centered characteristics. Professionally, he felt that to him had been granted a larger measure of insight than to others into the mysteries of nature as expressed in the laws of mechanics, and he was therefore little disposed to listen to the advice or criticism of those about him. This was undoubtedly one of Erickson's most pronounced professional faults. He did not realize that with all his insight into the laws of mechanics, and all his capacity for applying these laws to the solution of the problems under consideration, he might well make some use of the work of his fellow laborers in the same field. So little disposed was he to thus use the work of others, that a given device or idea which had been in previous use was often rejected and search made for another, different and original, even though it might involve only some relatively trivial part of the work. 
He was simply unwilling to follow in the lead of others. He must lead or have none of it, and thus the fact that a device or expedient was in common use would furnish an argument against, rather than for, its adoption. His natural mode of work was utterly to disregard precedent and to seek for fundamental solutions of his problems, having only in view the conditions to be fulfilled, the laws of mechanics, and the engineering materials of construction. This habit of independence and of seclusion within the narrow circle of his own work so grew on him in later years that mechanical science made many advances of which he took little or no note, and of which he refused to avail himself, even though he might have done so greatly to his own advantage. In his later years, in a letter to his friend, Captain Adelspar, he says, Do not laugh at me now, Captain, when I say nobody can mislead me. Do not condemn me if I at the same time confess that I am directed by nobody's judgment but my own, and that I will never consult anybody and take nobody's advice. In all matters connected with his work, his will was imperious, and he would brook no interference or criticism. His temper was high, his organization sensitive, and many times throughout his life, relations with his best friends became strained by his instability of temper or impatience with what he might construe as a criticism regarding his work. With this instability of temper, however, was combined a deep-seated tenderness and kindness of heart, and he was quick to forget the cause of offense as he was to manifest displeasure upon occasion. Notwithstanding the asperities of Erickson's character in regard to his professional work and his entire lack of effort to make friends among the learned of his day, recognition and unsought honors came in upon him. He was elected to honorary membership in the Societies of Note in the United States and Sweden, and in addition to the thanks of Congress and of the legislature of the state of New York, he received a resolution of thanks from the Swedish Reichstag, or Parliament, in 1865. In 1862, he was granted the rarely bestowed Rumford Medal, and received at other times during his life medal, honors, and decorations such as have perhaps fallen to no other who has wrought in the same field of human effort. While recognition of this character pleased him greatly when it came spontaneously and willingly, he placed but little value on that which he thought grudgingly or tardily tendered, and in one or two instances refused membership in societies which he thought granted in that manner. A large measure of this independence of character is necessary to the performance of the work which Erickson did. Had he been ever ready to listen to the views of others and to modify his ideas in accordance with them, his greatest achievements would never have been accomplished. In Erickson, however, this characteristic was carried to an undue extreme, and he might unquestionably have accomplished more had he been able to cooperate with others and to accept and use freely the best work of contemporaries in his own field. Erickson was essentially a designing rather than a constructing engineer. His genius lay in new adaptations of the principles of mechanics or in new combinations of the elements of engineering practice in such way as to further the purposes in view. His mode of expression was the drawing board. While he wrote vigorously and well, and while he was a frequent contributor in later years to scientific literature, especially on the subject of solar physics, Yet his best and natural mode of expression was the graphical representation of his designs on the drawing board. Forms and combinations took shape in his brain and were transferred to the drawing with marvelous speed and skill. Those who have been associated with him bear testimony that the amount of his work was simply astounding, and that only by a combination of the most remarkable celerity and industry could they have been accomplished. These drawings were furthermore so minute in detail and so accurate in dimension that as a rule he did not find it necessary to give further attention to the matter after it had left his hands. 
Of the many parts of a complicated mechanism, one could be sent for construction to one shop and another elsewhere, all ultimately coming together and making a harmonious and perfectly fitting whole. In no other way could such astonishing speed in the detailed construction of the monitor and other vessels of her type possibly have been made, and the fact that such speed in construction was obtained, and largely in this manner, is by no means the least impressive of the many evidences of Ericsson's genius as a designer. The designs once completed on the drawing board, however, Ericsson's interest in the work ceased in great measure, and as a rule he paid but little attention to constructive details and took but slight interest in the completed whole. Thus he is said to have visited his destroyer but once after she was built, and then simply in search of his assistant. He also declined an invitation from the assistant secretary of the navy to visit Hampton Roads and inspect the monitor immediately after her fight with the Merrimack. He seemed to have no curiosity to inspect his work after it had left his hands, or to receive a report as to the practical working of his designs. This shows a peculiar lack of appreciation of the value of intimate contact with constructive and operative engineering work. No one could hope to avoid errors or to realize by drawing board alone the best possible solution of engineering problems. Erickson willfully handicapped himself in this manner, and might unquestionably have more effectively improved and perfected his ideas had he been disposed to combine with his designs at the drawing board practical contact with his work as constructed. His work was all done in his office at his house. For the last 25 years of his life, he lived at 36 Beach Street, New York, where he wrought every day in the year, and often until far into the night. His office contained, besides his drawing table and other furniture, a long table on which, at times, when overcome by fatigue, he would stretch himself and take a short nap, using a dictionary or low wooden box for a pillow. His relations with his native land were always close, and, as already hinted, he gave much of his best effort to the study of means for her defense. Towards his friends and relatives, he was the embodiment of watchful care and generosity. His private benefactions were for his means large, and were given with a wholehearted generosity which must have added much to the love and esteem in which the recipients regarded him. His public benefactions were also notable, and during the later years of his life he gave away regularly no inconsiderable share of his income. Though gifted with reasonable prudence, he had no conception of the business sense and no capacity as a money-getter. After acquiring by his inventions and enterprise a modest competence, he devoted himself almost entirely to work less directly related to a financial return, and lived comfortably upon the principle which his earlier efforts had provided. Erickson had absolute faith in himself and in his mission to render available the energies of nature for the uses of humanity and civilization. His character was framed about the central idea of fidelity to his mission. He was dogmatic and optimistic as regards his own work. He had a contemptuous indifference to the work of others and a disregard of the help which he might derive from a closer study of such work. He trained himself, body, mind, and affections solely with reference to his mission and allowed no interference with it. He was the embodiment of physical and mental vigor, prodigious industry, continuity of purpose, indomitable courage, capacity for great concentration of mind, and oblivion to all distracting surroundings. With such characteristics, combined with the rare endowment of mental capacity and insight regarding the principles of engineering science, small wonder it is that his life was one so rich in results. It could not have been otherwise, and the result simply came as a consequence of the combination of the characteristics of the man and the surroundings in which he was placed. The question as to how much more or how much better he might have done had he possessed more faith in the work of others and a willingness to be guided in some measure by their experience is, of course, idle. 
Erickson was a combination of certain capacities and characteristics. A combination of other capacities and characteristics would not have been Erickson, and any discussion of such a supposition is therefore aside from the purpose of this sketch. John Erickson lived in a period of rapid engineering development and change. Old ideals were passing away, and the heritage which the 19th century was able to pass on to the 20th was in preparation. In this preparation, Erickson bore a large and most important part. So long as ships traverse the seas, Erickson's name will be remembered for his work in connection with the introduction of the screw propeller. So long as the memory of naval warfare endures, Erickson's name will be remembered for the part which he bore in the transition from wood to iron, from unarmored ships to turrets and armor, from scattered to concentrated energy of gunfire, and for his general share in the developments which have led to the ideal of a battleship prevailing at the opening of the 20th century. For these and for many other achievements he will be remembered, and his life and works should serve as a constant stimulus to those upon whom the engineering work of the present age has fallen, to see that, with equal fidelity, they live up to the possibilities of their endowments and opportunities, and serve with like fervency and zeal the needs of the age in which they are placed. Authorities Contributions to the Centennial Exhibition, Erickson John The Life of John Erickson Church, W.C. History of the Steam Engine, Thurston, R.H. Steam Navy of the United States, Bennett, Frank M. Who Invented the Screw Propeller? Nickel, James. The Naval and Mail Steamers of the United States, Stewart, Charles B. A Chronological History of the Origin and Development of Steam Navigation, Preble, Rear Admiral G.H. A treatise on the screw propeller, screw vessels, and screw engines as adapted for purposes of peace and war. John Bourne. End of section 13.